Hi, everybody. It's Charlie. Uh, this is the podcast to hell and back. I think it's my 46th one. Have to, I'd have to look on my own website to see that. And the, if you're listening to this live, it is March 13th for you in 2019. And for me and Andrea, who I'm talking with again today, it's actually March 7th. Uh, six days before that, that we're recording it. But you're probably, if you're listening, you're probably listening even later than the 13th. But in any case, um, I want to welcome everybody. Um, and uh, once again, this will be like part three of talking um, with Andrea Rosenhaft uh, about her experiences going through her um, uh struggles in her life, her adult life, both to have a life and to build a life and to cope with um, problems, uh, a number of problems, including anorexia nervosa and borderline personality disorder and going through treatments of different kinds. If you've listened to the first two podcasts, which I highly recommend, um, you already know a lot about that. And we're going to take, take part three today and get into uh, some other topics. Um, so let me make some introductory comments. First, I want to just say a few words about, uh, and these are these definitely related to uh, talking with Andrea, but to talk about attachment in treatment. Um, those of you who are uh, therapists, those of you who are in treatment or have been in treatment, um, it's anybody can relate to this. but. Those of you who, are, who know about DBT, one of the interesting things about uh, DBT is the way that uh, Marshall Linehan writes this whole book, this whole manual, all kinds of interesting stuff is integrated and put together. It's really um, a gift to the world, I think, that she put all this together the way she did. And there's lots of skills and lots of strategies and stuff. But she doesn't talk that much about attachment between the patient and the therapist. Um, and people ask about that. So I just want to comment on that because it kind of comes up, uh, if you listen to the first two podcasts about and talking to Andrea, uh, about the nature of her different therapies and, uh, and what made a difference to her. But also it came up this morning when I did a consult, I went to another part of the state of Massachusetts and um, and everybody seemed to be doing the right thing in this treatment, as far as I could tell, but things weren't moving forward very much. But it really seemed to me that um, people were kind of following rules and following the right treatment approach, but it didn't seem like there was attachment in either direction. And I think that made a huge difference. And I just want to tell you, those of you who have these thoughts about DBT, if you've ever learned it uh, or learned about it or are affected by it, um, when I asked Marsha Linehan, who developed DBT, about this once and said, you know, people say that you didn't talk that much about attachment. What do you say about that? And she says, uh, she said, oh, really? They say that? Oh, because actually, of course, I mean, to me, it's just obvious. You can't do the rest of these things unless you have attachment. I mean, it's at the core, but I don't make a big deal about it because I take it for granted which I think is a mistake myself, but, um, but still. And then she does say a few things, a little, a few things. But it, so I just want to say that's huge. And we heard a lot about it with 
Andrea, I just want to summarize a couple things she said that I want to highlight from last time um, that really stand out for me. Um, it's really like Andrea during the course of her uh, treatment, uh, her recovery, her healing, her dealing with her demons, uh, just keeps highlighting how important it was when she was in communities of people or in a relationship where she feels safe, where she feels the other person cares, where she feels like it's okay to say what she wants to say. And it was just so moving, if you listen to podcast number two, about how she was on an inpatient program, the DBT program um, at the hospital, the program that I was running, um, and how she talks about the effect of sitting day after day, week after week, month after month with a community of women, uh, mostly, um, because that most of the patients were women on that program, um, and talking, and how she felt like it had been the safest community of people she had ever been in, and how she could say things and know that people wouldn't like pick it apart or put it down or dismiss it or in some way invalidate it. You know, it's just an important part of DBT that, 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 um, and an important part of any treatment, I think, that you actually feel uh, safe and, can, and feel validated and how important that was. She also talked last time about the value of various different skills and talked very meaningfully about the value of, of the skill of radical acceptance, but then also brought up distress tolerance skills, things to help you get through things um, and, and how, how important that was. Um, so I just wanted to highlight those things. And one more thing is you may also recall if you listen to it, and I, I think this is worth underlining because it's, it's effective, it's a, a value all through mental health treatment, is that one of the things that helped her so much was when she was in a halfway house and there was another there was a, a counselor there who had been a client, a patient, on, uh, on a borderline uh, inpatient program, the psychoanalytic program for two years, who had tried to kill herself um, and who now was in a responsible position and how the two of them bonded and how important that was that you can bond with somebody who, has, who, can, who you can understand and you can connect to and, and, how, and see that that person can move forward in life because it you've already had your own hope that you can do something extinguished. And you see, wait a minute, here's somebody like me who can move forward, who can go off to school, in her case, who can get married and have kids. And it gave uh, Andrea hope. And, and through her, as she said, I could see possibility. That was just so moving to me. My tears came to my eyes at that point, um, realizing um, how, how long you can live without hope as if you're in a dark chamber, and then if you relate to somebody like that in a program or just in life or a psychotherapist that you relate to in some way, how it can open up hope. So I think the whole movement about peer support workers, um, or it could be a family member uh, that now is open with you, what a difference it can make. Um, so I just wanted to make a few comments getting started. Um, and then I want to sort of uh, frame today and then ask Andrea to just start, start to jump in. Um, today, what's really a couple of really interesting things, but I think the first big one is that 
Andrea has already told us that she went on from being in a DBT program and being immersed in DBT, put a positive spin on being an inpatient treatment for a long time because it was an immersing possibility of learning uh, DBT and DBT skills and what it had to offer, as well as exposing her to various people, some of whom were helpful to her. Um, but, but she then moved on from that. It had helped her in her life, but actually she still continued to have trouble. I mean, don't we all? I mean, continue to have trouble, but she's continued to have trouble at a really difficult level, I think, after that. Um, yeah. But she, is that right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I even, you know, I mean, even in the setting with the halfway house, I don't want to make it sound like everything went smoothly. I continued right. to have periods of cutting and starving and I had to sign contracts or I would, you know, go back to the hospital or be um, asked to leave the halfway house and things like that. So, I mean, mm. you know, even though I was there, it was still, I was still quite self-destructive and, you know, self, self-loathing. And that's one of the reasons I was there for so long. But yeah. um, although I had, you know, this, this wonderful counselor and, and um, I think she was one of the reasons that I didn't go even, you know, get even worse. But yeah, after I left mm. the house, halfway house, I think, because I think I was just there you know, too long. I had reached my limit, basically. Um, yeah, were you, and were then... You, were you, were you back at work? Were you back at work by that time, Andrea? Or, no, or um, I don't... I know that I had um, only... I believe I had only been in the outpatient day program for 18 months. So I actually mm-hmm. don't quite remember. Um, I had a lot of... Um, uh, courses of, um, several courses of inpatient ECT in 2005, 2006, mm. and then some also outpatient. So um, my memory was uh, greatly affected. So um, as I try to, re- I can mm. recall some things, but not everything. So um, I don't remember what I was doing the last year I was in the house. I mean, you had to be doing something. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I know that at some point, um, of, after I had moved into my apartment. So I moved into my apartment in 1995, and then a former supervisor of mine, when I was in the um, you know, marketing industry, uh, called me, and she was working at um, an enormous packaged goods corporation in Rye at that yeah. point, and she asked me if I wanted to come back and work for her. Um, she had actually trained me, took, took me on as an assistant after I was a secretary and actually trained me and taught me everything I knew. So I jumped at the chance. I was, uh, acutely, uh, as you can imagine, anxious. And, Mm -hmm. um, it was a very, uh, corporate atmosphere at that time. Mm. And, um, When I left my, when I got sick with anorexia and left my job, um, the com- we didn't have computers, and now I had a mm. kind of. Although I had learned to use a computer, I didn't know how to use a computer in a in a corporate setting, in a job setting, mm. and I, mm. I I really struggled there for about a year, and I mm. basically forgotten you know a lot, you know that I knew, and I just after a year I just gave up basically, and I resigned. Mm-hmm. And I mm-hmm. um, went to work for my mom, 
I tried, mm. you know, she was, you know, she was, of, of course, you know, wonderful and said, of course, you know. And, um, <laughs> and then, yeah. you know, but my brain is not wired logically. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's like uh, one of those, uh, you know, uh, jury questions. You know, if um, if person is on person A is on island X and person B is on island Y and person C is right. on island Z, you know, um, who will take boat the red boat and who will take the yellow? You know, one of those. You know, she what a has that question. Yeah, she what has that. Question? She could do that in about five seconds. You know, it would. She could do that. No, I couldn't wow. do that. So that's coding. You know, it's basically trying to learn to code. Um, so, so that took about three months and I told her that I wanted to go back to graduate school to become a social worker. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, she was so supportive. Um, mm-hmm. so, you know, she said our deal was that, um, she would support me, my living expenses, um, and I had to take out a loan to pay for, uh, school. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. um... So I went to when Fordham. Was, so when was that? What year did you go that to? That was, um, I, I, got, I started in the fall of 98, and I graduated mm-hmm. in the spring of 2000. Okay. And after, and um, after I left um, the outpatient program, I continued in private practice with, one, with the therapist that I was, had been there with. Okay. Um, uh-huh. And um, she was also very supportive Mm-hmm. of me going back to graduate school. Mm-hmm. And um, so, and I told you Cindy was a mentor, and we were emailing back and forth at that point. Okay. And um, the, perfect, the perfectionism kicked in again. Um, you know, of, my, of grades. And, you know, in graduate school, you don't I mean, we didn't have to take hardly any te- any test. It was all paper writing, which is a strength of mine. Mm-hmm. So um, if I got less than an A, you know, I could feel the anxiety, like, rise up, you know, through my gut and my esophagus. But mm-hmm. I, I graduated with a 4.0, but it came with a price of um, my anorexia, kick, my anorexia kick, kicking in again. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, Cindy was extremely supportive in her, in her emails, mm-hmm. you know, just, you know, t- mm-hmm. telling me that I have to, you know, take good care of myself and, and, you know, I, you know, and just, um, um, you know, it's not worth it and, and things like that, you know, just mm-hmm. very supportive. And um, so I did graduate <clears throat> And one of my most difficult memories is waiting, my mother and my brother, and I, you know, you're giving a limited number of tickets. It was at, it was Fordham, so uh, their main campus is um, Lincoln Center. So the, the um, graduation ceremony was at, uh, at Lincoln Center. And we're waiting by the, you know, famous mm-hmm. fountain. And, right. uh, m- you know, my dad never showed up. Oh. Yeah. Wow. And we had to go in. Wow. Wow. Your mother and your sister. Your your mother. My mother and my brother. Yeah, and your mother you know and your we. Brother, my, 
my my father was supposed to take the subway in from Queens. Mm-hmm. You know, so we're waiting, like waiting for the last minute, looking for him. You know, so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just another disappointment with him. Yep. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so then I got my um, first job at a outpatient clinic in, um, in New Rochelle. Mm-hmm. And two years in, I had to be hospitalized for anorexia. Mm-hmm. And then um, that was right after I got back from the hospital. And I w- had a very nice supervisor. Um, mm-hmm. My mother was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And three months later, she passed away. Mm. And then a couple years later, I went into like a really deep depression, was hospitalized, uh, things at my job, even though you believe it or not, was a mental health clinic. They just took away my caseload and reassigned me and uh, I I quit. Mm. Then I really, so that's when... um, I just quit therapy altogether. So that was about mm. 2005. Mm. Stopped taking my medication. Of course, I went into a total tailspin. And mm. um, I was in a women's group, like a really small women's group, with another therapist from the outpatient uh, day program. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And she referred me to... Uh, I remember it as a medication consultation with um, the therapist. The psych- she's a psychiatrist um, and a psychoanalyst, and that was the psychiatrist that specialized in TFP. Uh-huh. Oh, that's how you ended up with her. That's how I ended up there, yep. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And then we ended up working, you know, working together. So um, but you, you but also, I, this sounds, sounds like, Andrea, it's coming at about the same time that you had ECT. Right, because right? I was so depressed at that point, the, you know, the, another loss of a job and the, uh, you know, my depression, you know, I'd been diagnosed very early on with also not only anorexia and borderline personality disorder, but uh, major recurrent depression, uh, you know, mm. major depressive disorder, severe recurrent and at times with psychotic features. Um, mm-hmm. And that just kicked in, and I just, I was suicidal. I, I had six inpatient admissions in 18 months. And um, wow. one, one or two of them was with ECT, course of ECT, because nothing was working. It was, you know, very treatment-resistant depression at that time. Hmm. Um, so, so the doctor... The doctor that was that ended up doing TFP with you was she involved with you through that time? Was she trying yes, to? Yes, she was. Yes, I come was. in and just okay. lay out, you know, uh, uh, ideation, intent with a plan, and she had no choice. And mm. you know, she, you know, I'd see her in between hospitalizations, which you can imagine was with six within eighteen months was not, <laughs> you know, just focus on getting through this crisis. You know, but the ECT really didn't work that much for me, that well mm. for me, because um, I it worked. It alleviated the depression, but um, whatever meds I was on afterwards just didn't hold it, hold the uh, 
But then when, once we started our work together, you know, I had a contract, which is part of the um, TFP. Um, mm-hmm. So um, if I went under a certain weight, I'd have to go inpatient. If I, and this is very interesting, if I cut myself, even, even a scratch, I remember this so clearly, um, I'd have to get medical attention and a note from a doctor before I could see her again. And if I tried to uh, kill myself, she'd do everything to save me and then end the treatment. Mm-hmm. So that well, was the three of a, terms of the contract. Oh, if, if you cut yourself, say what that was again, you were going to have to get your own Even a scratch, treatment. I would have to go see a doctor. Okay. But, but it wouldn't be a reason to be calling you, to call her. No, it, be, it wasn't, it wasn't like, mm-hmm. um, it wasn't like a, a crisis kind of um, call, um, uh, mm-hmm. like to a DBT coach. That, you know, mm-hmm. that was not part of the, that was not part of the way she worked. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I could call her in an emergency. You could. Um, I could, but one of the one of the things that kind of bugged me about her, and she knows this, is she could be very short on the phone. Uh, mm-hmm. She wasn't one to stay on the phone. I mean, there were a couple of times I remember, like two two or three times. I think there were three times she remember. I remember she did stay on the phone with me for an extended period of time while well, I, I mm-hmm. stopped. <laughs> but other than that, other than those like three times, I don't remember. And I've call, and I called her like a number of times. Um, mm-hmm. She was not a person to like stay on the phone with you. Mm-hmm. You, know, you know what she what you just described uh, about those terms of the contract is a very typical TFP transference focused psychotherapy kind of contract, and it yeah. really does. It is one of the areas of significant contrast between that and a DBT approach to these things. So it makes me really curious since you went through both treatments. I mean, in DBT, if you feel like you're going to cut yourself or if you're on your way towards a suicide attempt, you can call, you're encouraged to call your psychotherapist as a coach to help you try to um, activate and use some skills uh, to manage in the crisis, and that's one of the deeper ways of beginning to learn the skills. But in DBT, if you've already cut yourself or you've already made a suicide attempt, there's also a, a, a kind of a rule of, no, this is not a time to call me. This is a time to get medical help. This is a time to get to an emergency room. But you've already used that behavior, so don't call me under those circumstances unless it's to have your life saved. Um, but, but there would be never a statement like, and your treatment will be over, I'll say, help, try to save your life with you, and then your treatment will be over. So tell me, with these kind of um, uh, sharper consequences for those kind of behaviors that you have in front of you, what, what, was, what was it like for you to have that different kind of contract compared to um, what it had been like with your previous uh, therapist? I was kind of terrified, um, you know, when I agreed to them. And I also, um, also part of the contract was twice a week therapy. Um, mm-hmm. Okay. And, but I think part of the reason I went in the, the hospital so much in the first 18 months was um, because I was honest with her about mm. the seriousness of, 
my plans, you know, and intent. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Where I was never, I was never so honest with anyone before. I had this desperate feeling inside me that this may be my last chance. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe maybe it was just maybe I couldn't even verbalize it. Maybe it was just kind of teetering on the edge of my brain or something. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. you know, I just I thought you know, you know, Andrew, you've been through. This is, you know, you're. I think how old was I? I was about forty-five, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. And I said, you know, you're forty-five years old. I said, you know, it's time to get your shit. <laughs> try and get your shit together. I said, mm-hmm. if if this doesn't work, you know, what's going to happen to you? Mm-hmm. And it's mm-hmm. not to say, um, you know, we didn't have our, um, you know, after after the first 18 months, which was definitely shaky, it's not to say things didn't get worse before they got better after that, because mm-hmm. that's when the real work started. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, Did, it's a very, very intense treatment. Having the contract like that, uh, where you're doing twice a week, but you also have these rules about uh, if you cut yourself or if you make a suicide attempt and, and these things, um, did, did, and, and in combination with you feeling like, you know, this might be my last chance, did that contract sort of help you stay within certain limits in your own behavior? Um, it did. It was frightening, but it, did it help you? It did. I yeah. I never cut my I've never cut myself again. Um, since that you know since I entered uh, TFP with her, um, mm-hmm. you know let's just call her uh, Doctor B, and mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I did lose weight, but I didn't get down to the all the way down to the number that she had specified. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, I did actually did tried to, I did make a suicide attempt um, many years, not many years later. So we had started together in two, 2005. And in um, 2015, um, I mean, my 2013, my father passed away. And in two, early 2014, I made a suicide attempt because um, not out of grief, but all the anger and resentment that I had never let myself feel at my father just came to the surface. Mm. Mm. And um, I had been in a partial program and, you know, I just, it just, you know, it didn't work. Nothing happened. We were changing medications. Nothing happened. Um, I was very Mm -hmm. angry at her, but I was afraid to tell her because um, mm-hmm. anger was one emotion, you know, that I just was always afraid. I mean, you the other emotions. Angry. You, you were angry, I was angry at, at Dr. Her. B. Dr. Yeah. B, okay. But I was wow. just afraid to tell her because I was just so afraid of abandonment and rejection from her. Um, mm. and, um, and after the partial program, I tried to go back to work. And on Friday, I knew I couldn't go back. It was horrible. Because even though it was the second, you know, another mental health clinic, and they just treated me horribly. Mm-hmm. So on that weekend, I took, I took an overdose, and, um, you know, when I didn't, like, 
you know, die after like five or six hours. I was feeling very, very sick. And I went mm. to the ER and I had to stay there for the weekend until um, my vital my vital signs stabilized and then, then transferred me over to New York Hospital. But while I was there, the psychiatrist on call came in and he's like, um, what happened? And I, he's like, who's your psychiatrist? And I just was hysterical. And I said, what she said, if I ever tried to kill myself, she'd end the treatment. So I guess she's not my psychiatrist anymore. But, mm. um, you know, after uh, she agreed to see me, like for a, like a consultation after I got discharged mm. and she took me back. And, um, and that's, I mean, then the treatment got even more intense, if you could believe it or not. Yeah, tell, um, tell, us, what, tell us what you mean when you keep saying the treatment's intense so, because um, uh, so, it, I'm convinced yeah. that it is. But what, what do you mean by that? So, um, I mean, I, I, she, I had a very difficult time being spontaneous with my feelings, and that took me a long time. And she mm-hmm. challenged me. My other therapist um, did not challenge me and confront me. Mm. Mm. And, you know, she just had no problem with that, and I wasn't used to that. And, um, you know, um, she said, I, don't, I, don't think, I don't think, you know, I don't think that's the way it was. But she, it wasn't in an invalidating way, and it wasn't in a mm-hmm. judgmental way. It was just in a very matter-of-fact way. And, a matter of fact um, way, just saying, just saying, you, you know, I, just make it. She held out the expectation that you could talk about your feelings. It right. sounds like and challenged and, you to do it rather than backing off from that. Right, and she just say, you know, just think about it this way, you know, basically, and um, and you know, and. And, you know, through years and years, and I was with her for 11 years, from 2005 to 2016, and we spent all of 2016, you know, working on termination. And, um, you know, this was an incredible decision, mutual decision, because I really never thought I'd be able not to be in therapy and have pay someone to listen to me and mm-hmm. be able to cope on my own. But... Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I had, I had um, put my mother way up on a pedestal, and, you know, she made me see that my mother was human with flaws. And I cried, and she said to me that, um, you know, and I, and I fought that. I didn't want to take my mom down off the pedestal. I had, put, I had put my mom back on. I put my mom on, and she said to me that, um, you know, your mom, my my mom and my relationship together was so codependent, and my I you know um, I'm trying to think I I got so much attention from my mom was when I was sick. I didn't get that's the only way I knew to get my mom's attention, and mm. um, and that was very hard for me. Mm-hmm. to come to terms with, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, and um, hard after to her accept, death, hard it's to accept very that hard that was that that was a way that things worked between you and your mom. Yeah. You mean? Uh-huh. Yeah. And, um, you know, after her death, 
not right after her death, obviously, many years after her death, I, um, you know, I came to a very difficult realization, you know, while I was um, from our work together, was um, while I'd give anything, and um, yesterday was actually the 17th anniversary of her death, um, I'd mm. give anything to, you know, have my mom back, um, that, you know, if she hadn't passed away, um, I may not be, have made all the progress I, I, have, I have made, which is, mm. you know, obviously very, very difficult to acknowledge. Mm. Mm. Um, you mean you know, if one she of my biggest... pa- why, why is that, that if she hadn't passed away, why wouldn't you have been able to make progress um, in a similar way? Because, because our, you... our relationship was so codependent and, and dependent on me staying ill for her attention. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you that know, would, would, have, would have been hard to break that. Um, yes, very hard. Co- yeah. Codependent bond. Okay. Yeah. Because she got yeah. as much out of it as I did. She did, yeah. sounded yeah. like, from what you said last week, it sounded like your mother was willing to drop a lot of things in order to uh, really make sure that you were okay. Um, yeah. Not just not just you. It sounds like she was a devoted mother for both you and your brother. But it, but it, I remember you know that she she arranged to work close to home so that um, you know you guys she she would be close to you. Um, right. Things like that. Right. And yeah. And then she um, when she moved to Connecticut and started her own business, um, the software development um, company first she started out of her home in Connecticut, and then she. Um, she, when when the business grew, she just uh, took office space in da- you know in downtown Stanford. So, um, mm-hmm. and White Plains is only you know half an hour from Stanford. So, mm-hmm. right, right. You you know this this um, thing that you said about the, your transference focused therapy therapist um, being so uh, you know holding high expectations and challenging you to um, come forth with your feelings about things, even when you were not, that wasn't your style. That sounds like it was a huge part of why it was intense and a huge part of why it may be turned out to be helpful to you. Do you think? It was. Um, she, has, um, she has an Hungarian accent. And her favorite, yeah. her, favorite, her favorite phrase was, what comes to mind? And I will never, never forget that. So, you know, we'd be sitting there, <laughs> and she said, you know, I can't do a Hungarian accent even after hearing oh, it for 11 I years. Just, I was going to ask you to imitate it. You can't No, it. I can't. I'm not good at accents. So she oh, said, I... what comes to mind? And, you know, I just, like, look at her and, you know, and I'd pause and I'd, I'd give her the reason, you know, I was thinking what to say. And, you know, like one day, a couple of years into our therapy, she just, she said, you know, bullshit. She said, uh-huh. she goes... You're just, you know, something like you're afraid to say, you're afraid to be spontaneous, you know, and, um, you know, you're hesitating not because you're thinking. She goes, just say it. And I really, mm. I started to, and I, but I really had to work at it. You mm. know, and I had, um, I used the phrase, I'm introverted and, and all this, you know, excuse after excuse after excuse. And mm-hmm. she just called me on it, you know. Um, and I really so tested she- her. No, I'm sorry, she, go ahead. Taught, 
she talked to you at that moment as if um, you could, you know, you're, you're, you have a, so, a lifelong history of being socially inhibited, of being shy, of being in, in, introverted. And, uh, and then she's saying, come on, out with it. Um, yeah. and, you're, and you're saying, no, I can't. I'm, I'm introverted. I can't do this. It sounds like she would take the position, oh, come on. Uh, uh, let's hear a it. Little more, a little more forceful than that. Yeah. <laughs> forceful. Yeah. 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 Bullshit. Um, yeah. Bullshit. Come on. Tell me it. So she made the assumption that you could take that next step, um, that you could reveal your feelings both to her and to yourself. Uh, something that mm-hmm. you that you had been shying away from. Yeah, you yeah. in your in your DBT work, you your the style of the treatment, at least the treatments that you got with different people, would not have included that kind of level of confrontation. Right. No, not at all. Uh, it was more encouragement and um um and kind of um you know do what you can when you're ready, I think, more. Um, mm. But she was more, you know, pushing me. I remember, um, you know, when I had, um, after that period of time when I had had the hospitalizations and was working with her for a while, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, she said, um, I think it's time you got a job. She said, it doesn't, you know, have to be in your field. I said, it could, she said it could be, you know, a part-time job at the mall or something. Um, she goes, mm-hmm. I don't work with people who, um, you know, just, I was on social security disability at that point, who, mm-hmm. who you know, whose goal is to stay on, you know, dis- disability for the rest of their lives. And she was very mm. blunt about it. Mm. So I mm. went to Westchester Mall and got a part-time job in retail. Mm. And in five months, I was bored out of my mind. Mm-hmm. And I got, uh, then I got a per diem job two days a week at a clinic in Queens that mm-hmm. I was, you know, I was terrified at how I explained the gap in my resume, but I managed to um, come up with something. And two mm-hmm. days turned to four days, and um, in 10 months, they hired me full time. Mm-hmm. And I was mm-hmm. there for seven years. And then I had that. Um, suicide attempt, and again, you know, things went south there. Um, so, I, so mm-hmm. I, you know, found another job, and you know, mm-hmm. where I am today. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, I want to, you know, things, and you know, she also, Dr. B also did, um, you know, things that showed me. She was honest. And she showed me, like, at one point when the therapy was very stalled, let's say, and I wasn't going anywhere, she actually got my permission to videotape the sessions on her computer. She was, she's part of the, she belongs to the, um, it's called the Personality Disorders Institute. Right. So she was, you know, yeah, so... um, and they have offices in White Plains in New York and all over the world, So, uh, as does um, Dr. Kernberg. So, mm-hmm. And she showed them to her colleagues, you know, for some, mm. like, a consultation. Mm. You know, so she was not, 
she was showing me, helping me take her off the pedestal I had also put her on. Mm. You know, I'm not the mm. all-knowing therapist. I don't have all the answers. Mm. Mm-hmm. You know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, um, and, yeah. Um, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. I'm no, and I'm, I'm you know, and, um, you know, there were times I, I tested her, especially, you know, at the, at, towards the end of the therapy when things, you know, just got heat, when got really heated, especially after the suicide attempt. And I was finally able to express my anger at her, directly at her. I said, I'm angry at the world. I'm angry at you. I'm angry at, you know, everybody. And she goes, being angry at the world is easy. <laughs> she goes, being angry mm-hmm. at me is not. You know, mm-hmm. I fired her mm-hmm. a couple of times. You know, she took me back. Um, I lied to her. I misled her. She says there were times when I wanted to kick your butt, like, all the way to, you know, the other side of the ocean. I don't, you know, I don't remember the light. Of, I mean, she, she, mm-hmm. she said I was frustrated with you. I mean, she told me, you know. Um, I mean, mm-hmm. by that time, our bond was really strong. Mhm. Mhm. You know. Um, mhm. So. You know, was I think. Good. Was some of the intensity? Um, really, you're 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 just giving an unbelievably um, valuable explanation of this. I think gives people a lot to think about. Um, but is was was uh, any of the intensity because also you were covering um, episodes in your life, your life history, your story, uh, and feelings associated with that that you had never really gone into before, or wasn't that the nature of the intensity? The intensity was something more happening between you and her, and how she interacted with you about trying to to help you break through with your feelings, or have you get a job, or give you a contract or, you know, take a real um, firm stance with you? What would you say? No, I mean, all that, but yes, I was talking about things I had never been able to talk about with anyone. Mm. And okay. she, like, like sexuality, I mean, my, deep, my deepest, dark, darkest um, fantasies, and, um, um, mm-hmm. and I was so convinced what was going to come out of my mouth was going to kill her. And I told her that. Um, you know, this is, mm-hmm. again, in, in um, you know, after about five or, this took about five, actually took about five or six years. And mm-hmm. she just looked back and she looked at me and, you know, she has this like huge, comfortable um, black leather chair that reclined with an ottoman and like she had really hard, these hard black leather chairs for her patients. Yeah. And I always thought it was to keep us alert. And then I go back um you know, for a check-in, and she got these really cushy chairs. I'm like, now you get these cushy chairs. But she leaned back, and she said, she said, um, I can take it. And I believe her. Uh-huh. You know, uh-huh. just those, whatever, those four simple words. So I started telling her, you know. So I just trusted her, mm-hmm. you know, implicitly. And... Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That guy had never trusted and, anyone in my life. Mm-hmm. You know? Interesting. I mean, what do you think were the qualities that inspired trust in her? Um, 
you know, gosh, I just, I think she sat there. I think it was really um, the lack of the non-judgmental, the way she spoke when I said stuff, I, you know, tested the waters, said something, you know, I, I, and I looked for her reaction and she had none. Mm-hmm. You know, to me, that was, um, no, that to me, that showed that she was non-judgmental. You know, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Um, I heard, I, I just, when I was listening, when I, when I heard her speak and, and, and I heard her interpretations, you know, because I was a therapist myself, mm-hmm. it, it made me realize how intelligent she was. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, and yeah, I was just thinking various, I mean, I asked this question about what were the ingredients that made you uh, trust her because that's such an important thing for people in their therapy. And I think it's worth people thinking about these things, but, um, in some ways you've already said a lot of things that I think would inspire uh, trust one one I would say not she's non-judgmental but it sounds like she's also very honest and straightforward with you like you it didn't seem like you had to worry that she was going to be withholding some agenda from you um, right you know and she was very intelligent and she was true to her word um, it was unusual I think after your suicide attempt that you described that she uh, decided to continue with you after saying that that was that violated contract but it sounds right. like she took that very seriously and she did a consultation with you so you know she showed a little bit of flexibility there and willingness to do that given the circumstances um but but by and large it sounds like she was uh, and also i there's something about the way you describe her that's that really gets to me that um that makes it sound like she took you really seriously. Um, she did. She, she really, like, she took seriously that you would possibly die. Uh, she took seriously that you were in terrible shape. She took seriously that you were capable of more uh, than you were doing, and she p- would push you in that direction. And there's something about it that just makes it sound like, yeah, when you're, when you're dealing with a life-threatening condition and something that has been so damaging to your life, I think you want somebody who, who appreciates that, realizes that, and who says something like, I can take it. You know, yeah. I can hear you. I can hear you out. I can sit with this. You can be angry at me um, and in all kinds of ways. So. I think it's, it's, it does sound, I, I, don't want to, I don't want to contribute to some kind of putting her on a pedestal or glorifying her because I think there's a lot of ways therapists can be this way, but I just find it really interesting to, to think about what inspired trust because it isn't, it isn't that what inspired trust was just encouragement, support, uh, teaching you things. Um, there are valuable things in DBT. And by the way, many of these ingredients we're talking about can be part of a DBT therapist's repertoire. They don't, you know, I don't, I don't, maybe it wasn't with some people, though when you said some things about Cindy, one, one of the things that you said right away about her that was valuable was that she was a straight shooter. And she, would, yeah. you know, she would name things. Um, it sounds like a certain kind of similar, um, you know, willingness to be straight with you and to be, you know, push you. Um, right and call it call you on stuff 
Um, yeah, I mean, the, the therapies, you know, qualities of the therapist may be the same, but the material that's explored, the way the two, therapy, the two therapies approach, um, you know, an issue is very different, obviously, because TFP goes, is psychodynamic and goes into your, you know, childhood and, and looks at relationships with your parents and other people and mm-hmm. how that's formed you and how that's formed your relationships to date and how you interact with the therapist mirrors mm-hmm. the outside relationships in your life. So, you know, we talked a lot about my perfectionism and how even though I stopped um, acting on anorexia, um, you know, the perfectionism has transferred over to my work and, and is, um, can, can serve to sometimes self-destruct or um, hurt my, my work performance and, and cause me stress. Um, because mm-hmm. I take myself, I'm so hard on myself and everything, mm-hmm. you know, with me is I can't, I can't, um, I can't live in mediocrity. I have to be either, you know, uh, it's very black and white thinking, which is, you know, still, you know, typical. Um, I have to be either perfect or a total failure. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, we're getting to the point where I can, um, I can, I'm aware I can catch it, you know, which mm-hmm. is something for which you've done since you were a child. You know, it's very hard to change that kind of thinking. But when you're aware of it, you know, it's the first step. Yeah, at least you can see it's happening and uh, label it for what it is, right? Yeah. Um, let me ask you a different thing, Andrea, that, that um, as you describe the work you did with, your, with Dr. B., um, you had told me either on the podcast or in a conversation we had between the podcast, I forget which, um, that there was something about having been in DBT that helped you become able to do the kind of work you, ha- you were expected to do in transference-focused therapy. I, if, I don't know if right. I have that exactly right, but I wonder if you right. could no, say it, a little but, more yeah. about I that. I mean, she actually pointed out to me at one point, she said to me that the, the skills – um, that I learned in DBT um, were actually um, helpful to be able to tolerate um, the difficult, intense feelings that came up uh, during the course of our work in TFT. And mm-hmm. she said, I, she said, I wouldn't have been ready to do that work without having first uh, learned DBT skills. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, what's, one of the things that's interesting that you might not, this is a later development in, DB, in DBT, but some of the things you're saying about her style and what happened and the content, it's a little bit, reminds me a little bit about a, a later development in DBT was the development of, of um, prolonged exposure therapy within DBT for people who had histories of trauma or histories even of severe invalidating environments, even if there wasn't specific traumatic events. Um, and that that work that goes on is, is very intense. It, it, you go over these things. I mean, you're, you're treated as if you will and you are expected to tell things that have happened to you uh, and the things that it brings up for you and the feelings that you have about it and, the, and the, what it did to your what, what your feelings about your body and the fantasies that are associated with it, 
all of that is is part of it and you and the therapist really doesn't um, act very um, skill oriented doesn't act very specifically encouraging supportive it's really the job is okay now you've been through dbt for a year you've learned the skills and it's just like what your dr b was saying you you now have things to fall back on you now have things you can do if your emotions get out of control and so now we can afford to go deeper and into some of the things that you haven't been able to ever talk about uh, feelings and and memories and so and 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 the people who've learned how to do that um, sub-treatment, you might say, of DBT, or it's actually a hybrid treatment between DBT skills-oriented treatment and then trauma-focused um, prolonged exposure where you really go into things in a way that you've never been able to do before. You know, also that relies on the fact that you've got a bedrock of skills, a foundation of skills and, and strategies to, uh, to make it through things like that. And so the DBT prolonged exposure therapist specifically relies on the fact that you have those things so that they can push you harder. Um, so it sounds like there's what that happens, what's called in stage two of DBT. And a lot of what you've talked about so far is, is what the, all the work that goes on in stage one to try to have more skills to regulate your feelings or your behaviors or your, your relationships. So, is there sort of a place within DBT? I think there has been from the beginning. Since I was first psychoanalytically trained and I was trained in transference-focused psychotherapy and I worked for years with Dr. Kernberg um, and with some of the people in that group, um, the question was often asked when I first learned DBT and started doing it, well, could you do a hybrid treatment of DBT and psychoanalytic or psychodynamic therapy of this kind because they they seem to go different directions but they seem to be potentially complementary or you could do them at one stage at a time in a way that's what you did that wasn't your intention it wasn't any particular person's intention but you you've been kind of a natural experiment uh, I don't mean to I mean I don't know <laughs> I, I know, par- yeah. paranoid or anything I don't mean it that way I just mean <laughs> in, in talking to you is an extraordinary opportunity for people who are interested in these kinds of treatments um, these two and others to hear the your incredibly articulate explanations of what it's been like to be in both of these treatments and your non-judgmental approach about both of them you know you're really not saying oh you know forced into a position of saying oh this is better than that or this is what I should have had it's sort of like each of them contributed something to you and they're very different uh, right, at, at certain times in my life, right. Yeah, yeah, at certain times in your life. So it's a, it's a, you, you don't know this because you're not out on the circuit like I am teaching people, supervising people, but it's very rare that somebody can be so um, non-judgmental and not, not fall into some trap of uh of debating about what's better uh, even when i ran the program of dbt that you were in and i had previously run the one based on transference focused therapy in the same hospital that your counselor from the from the halfway house had been in um you know that i had done both of those and I, and i was always being asked you know which is better and 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 where should somebody go and i never knew I just thought yeah. these are two different these are two different treatments for the same population of people and they're each of them has a whole world 
that's internally consistent within it. And nobody knows uh, for sure what should be done about the relationship between the two. Um, but, mm. you know, you, so you give a very interesting set of observations. I want to really thank you for that, really on oh, behalf of every, everybody, everybody who listens who's going to get so much out of this. Um, so thank you for your our honesty and your non-judgmental nature and your articulateness <laughs> about thank these you. things. So You're I un- just yeah. Get, Go ahead. I just wanted to address in the remaining couple of minutes we have left is yes. a question that might be on a lot of people's minds is how do how did I afford all this intense treatment? I because was just going to bring that up. Good. Yeah, because it's basically yeah. um, you know basically about thirty five years of treatment. Um, yeah. You know, very different kinds of treatment. So. Um, as I said, I started basically in the inpatient DBT treatment. You know, that was, um, at that time, it was before managed care. So that was covered by insurance, although I did leave because my insurance uh, refused to pay anymore because at that time, the unit was giving um, passes. And uh, mm. insurance said I got too many passes. And um, if you remember, Charlie... Right. Uh, you were going to send me to a state hospital, <laughs> uh, oh. Primor. Yeah, you signed the transfer papers, yes. which I actually still have the copy of as a souvenir. But then my mother yeah. stepped in, and she said, "No child of mine is going to a Creedmoor because I grew up in the shadow of Creedmoor in Queens." Mm. And mm. Um, they everybody uh, kind of reached a compromise about the halfway house, and. Mm-hmm. Um, um, the day, the day program, so that was also still paid by insurance. Um, mm. And then mm. um, the um, uh, the DBT therapist from the day program that I continued with, um, her fee was relatively um, low, um, mm-hmm. so I was able to pay her out of pocket with mm-hmm. I think my mom's help. Um, because at that time, my mom's business had uh, pretty much taken off, uh, mm. and she was actually very quite successful. Um, you mm-hmm. know, so um, so my so my family, I had um, you know once managed care kicked in, I had um, you know support from my family, and then I started working as a therapist, so I had insurance coverage. Um, so once I started seeing Dr. B, uh, she did not take insurance and, uh, mm. you know, as, as you can imagine her fee being a psychiatrist was rather high and yeah. she was, um, actually, uh, very, very generous, um, um, adjusting her fee, uh, so I can continue working with her, adjusting her fee mm. rather mm. flexible. Um, depending on my current financial situation, mm. um, which fluctuated mm. um, quite up and down, depending on you know what was happening with me at the moment, and mm-hmm. um, there was a point where I was even seeing her three times a week. And uh, mm. when I couldn't pay her, I couldn't pay her, and she trusted me to pay her, and I always paid her what I owed her. Mm-hmm. Um, you mean she trusted you to pay her later? Yeah, at a later date when I could. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. my brother, after my mom died, my brother was also paid uh, a good portion of my treatment. Mm. Mm. Um, he, w- he took over my mom's business, and he also was unconditionally there for me. 
financially mm. and emotionally. Mm. Thank goodness. You know, yeah, thank goodness mm. for him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And when I had yeah. insurance, insurance, you know, paid for inpatient and medication. Mm-hmm. I was on a ton of medication at times. So mm-hmm. I was fortunate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You were fortunate. But, but what's interesting to hear is that it isn't that you were, it isn't that you had independent wealth that got you through. It was here and there, you know. Uh, uh, there were, people were um, making negotiations to try to make it work um, because yeah. of how important it was. But, so you were fortunate to have some angels in your life um, that helped make this possible. Um, but it wasn't independent wealth. But, you know, if somebody's listening and thinking, well, I could never do that, I think you, what, what you, you could never have predicted that all of that could have been paid for either. You would have had to go one step at a time and, yeah. and see, what, see what was possible. And sometimes you find surprising things that if you're willing to work hard, sometimes you'll have people who will, are willing to give you a break or give you some support or something like that. You know, there sounds like there's really only a, only one dark spot in that story was me uh, signing papers to send you to Creedmoor uh, <laughs> to State Hospital. So um, if if that deserves an apology, actually, I don't. I, as I remember that, and I was it wasn't the only time I was in that position. It was such a hard, awful position to be in to have somebody go through our treatment and then be denied of any more insurance coverage and then they don't have any more and the hospital's not going to accept free treatment at that point. So it's like, but if somebody you still think is, is going to need to be uh, in a hospital in order to not die, it gets really tough. <laughs> and so no, I can imagine. Just in defense yeah. of myself, but I, because I feel terrible that, that I was uh, trying to send you to a place that you lived in the shadow of and that you feared. Um, actually, Creedmoor went on to develop around those years, somewhere in those years, a little later, I think. They had a very serious DBT program that was started up by somebody who trained at New York Hospital uh, in Westchester Division. Um, oh. So I, I trained some people from Creedmoor in their DBT program at one point. But it was probably not there yet when, when, when we're talking about 1991 or so. Yeah. Um, Look, we're going to have to stop, which is too bad, uh, because it's just been so meaningful. And for me personally, for lots of reasons, just having known you so many years ago and so glad you contacted me and that we got into this conversation. Uh, It's going to stay with me for a long time. I'm going to listen to it more than once, that's for sure. And, um, And I will send you any emails that people send me uh, to, you know, or if somebody wanted to get in touch with you, um, is there a way actually could they, could we close by that? Or you can just say, no, you'd rather not give that out, but I could pass on information if I get it from someone. Um, yeah, I mean, I'll give, um, my email address. Um, it's, um, LCSW, like a licensed clinical social worker, yeah. uh, 2000, the year 2000, and yeah. it's at live L. As in Larry, I, I as in Igloo, V as in Victor, E as in Edward, dot com, and just put um, podcast in the subject line so I know. That's what it's about. Know. Okay. Yeah. That's well, that's very. I didn't. I'm, I hope I didn't force you into that. That's very generous no. of you. I just, I just, I just know that sometimes people really want to reach out after things like this and and convey some of their reactions. So, you know, there it is. 
Andrea, I'll, I'll be following up with you over the next week just so we can talk about how all of this went. I look forward to listening to this, and I'm just so glad you did this. Thank, thank you so much for, from me as well as everyone else who listens. Thank you, Charlie. Okay. You're totally to welcome. speak to you again. Yeah, you too. That's true. We're having a long-term relationship here. <laughs> all right. Well, take care. Okay. Take good care. Bye-bye. You too. Bye-bye. Bye.